Well, if you missed Bradley's early announcement, he had called some of his family member to join him, uh, along with some other volunteers for the worship team. And so, one, they did an excellent job. But two, this might be, go ahead, yeah, let's, all the way through, let's follow through on that. Two, I think this is our chance to learn some things about Bradley, right? Where's those embarrassing family stories that we need to know? So try to catch them on your way out today. If we haven't met before, my name is Kyle Denny. I'm the youth pastor here, as well as the director of finance. So I oversee middle school, high school uh, ministries. And since I have the microphone, I'm gonna do a free plug for youth ministry right now. We have some summer events that are coming up. Uh, One is our middle school event. If you don't know what's going on with middle school, we have these flyers by the E2E books at both entrances. This is a great resource. This will give you a roadmap of what we're doing. This Wednesday, we're doing a Nerf gun war as well as a Bible study afterwards. You can come to one, you can come to the other, you can come to both. We'd love to see you there. And then high school, we are doing a Bible study at my house Thursday night from 7.30 to 9.30. So if you want more details, uh, please let us know. There's the sheet you can pick up, but then our parent email, that's the best way to get information. I'm gonna send out another parent reminder tomorrow. It'll have all the details about it. We'll be texting the students' numbers that we have. Um, But if you wanna get on that parent email, just fill out a connect card, go through the website, or just come talk to me afterwards. We'd love to make sure you're connected. Well, I'm not Pastor Mark. If you missed Jeff's email, Pastor Mark is doing some extended vacation. So that is planned, that is purposeful, that is strategic. We want Pastor Mark for the long haul, and so he's just gonna be taking some extended time. So we're gonna take a break from our E2E study. Instead, we're in a short series of partakers. This is 2 Peter chapter one. If you'd like to flip there, we're gonna continue from where we left off last week, 2 Peter chapter one, verses five to seven. But while you're turning there, I'm just going to tell us a little story about a tightrope walker. There was a famous tightrope walker in 1859 named Charles Blondin, and he was the first one to ever tightrope walk across the Niagara Gorge. It was 1,100 feet long. It was 106 feet above raging, churning waters. He was the first one to do it. He didn't use safety nets. He didn't use harnesses, anything like that. What was remarkable about him was that he didn't just walk forwards through it, he kept doing other stuff. He would walk backwards across the tightrope. He would walk blindfolded across it. He would walk chained up once he somersaulted over the 1,100 feet of tightrope walk. One time he even strapped an oven to his back and a chair to his back. He went to the very middle. He set up his chair and his oven perfectly. He lit a fire and he cooked some omelets on this tightrope. Like he was always pushing the limits of what he wanted to do. Well, one day he went to one side of the gorge and he announced to the audience that had gathered and he said, hey, who believes that I can take someone across in a wheelbarrow? And the crowd went nuts. They're like, yes, yes, we believe you can do it. And then he said, who's willing to get in that wheelbarrow? (laughs) Silence, right? Like crickets chirping. No one trusted him enough. They may have believed he could do it. They didn't trust him with their lives to do it though, right? When we become a believer, God is not looking for someone to just cheer him on in the sidelines. He's looking for someone to jump in that wheelbarrow with him. And so we're gonna see that in our passage today. I'm gonna to read it out in front of us. This is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses five to seven. It says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge 
knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. This is the word of the Lord. Very brief background. If you missed last week, we talked about 2 Peter and how it's written by the Apostle Peter. This is likely 30 years after Jesus had died and was resurrected, and Peter's an older man at this point. His death is looming. He knows that he's going to be executed, and he's trying to stir up his audience by way of reminder. He wants to protect them from false teachers. He starts our passage off by saying, for this very reason, make every effort. Now, if you know me, you may know that I love Black Friday shopping. This may not surprise you that the accountant loves the day that everything goes on sale, right? But I remember a time before we had Amazon as big. I remember a time before online sales were what they were. And I have these vivid images in my head of people camping out at Best Buy, right? They would camp out a week early and they would get vacation time off. They would bring their own food. They'd bring tents and chairs. They'd rope their family into coming. They would uh, miss Thanksgiving in order to camp out to be at the very front of this line. And it's because they wanted the prized possession of the Xbox 360 or whatever gaming console it was, right? They had this fervor. They had this zeal because they wanted that first place in line. Well, Peter is going to call us to this type of fervor, but it's much deeper. It's much fuller than even that. We're called to have a deep eagerness to do something because we have a better motivation. You see, you can't just tell someone to be zealous about someone or something or to, to really care about something. You have to give them the right motivation. And that's exactly what Peter is going to do for this. He says, for this very reason, make every effort. He's reminding his audience of what their motivation is. It's the content of verses three to four. This is what we talked about last week. But if we were to give just a brief summary of some of this, it's that God has lavishly granted us. He has given us some amazing things, but it's through a doorway. It's through something else. And so we talked last week, doorway number one is that he's given us all things, not some things, all things related to life and godliness, but it's through the knowledge of Jesus. You don't get those things without a personal relationship with Jesus. This life we talked about, this was the full quality, this was meaning, this was joy, this was absolute fullness. And then godliness was our ability to drink that life in and then live it out. To be able to enjoy this life, it means that we should begin to look like Jesus. And so those things he gave us through the doorway, through knowledge of Jesus. Doorway number one, it equips us. But then we talked about doorway number two, and it's through his promises. It's through God's promises that we become partakers of the divine nature. That doesn't mean you get to become God himself. Okay, let's just clear that up right now. It's not that you get to become God, but it's that you get to join him in who he is like. We escape the decay of corruption, and we're in the process of being restored back to his image. We're going to see that more today. God doesn't want us cheering on the sidelines. He wants us to be partakers. He wants us to jump in that wheelbarrow. The verse says, for this very reason, 
Make every effort to supplement your faith. Peter says, have the fullest amount of eagerness. Have all haste to do something, and it's to supplement. It's the Greek word that means to provide at one's own expense, often extravagantly, to supply, to furnish. So it's rooted in the Greek culture. When a city wanted to put on a Greek tragedy, they often didn't have the finances to do it, and so they would buddy up with someone wealthy in the city, and that, that person would supply the chorus. They would supply the money. They would reach into their bank accounts and supply the money for the training, for the material, for everything that chorus needed. And since it was going to be in display of the whole city, it was often extravagant. They wanted it to look good because it reflected them. Well, Peter's not talking about furnishing a chorus. Sorry, Pastor Michael. But we are going to dip into something in order to supply something else. We're not dipping into our bank accounts. We're dipping into our faith. We're dipping into our trust of God in order to provide these other qualities. Next, Peter's going to tell us to do something. But before we start talking about our actions, we should address the question, isn't it legalism to focus on our actions? Are we going to be doing this to get salvation? And the quick answer is no. These qualities in and of themselves, they won't save you. Peter's already said in verse 1 of his letter that he's writing to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's Jesus. It's his righteousness. That's what saved us. They already have faith. Peter is writing to people that have this faith, but he's saying that you get to become a partaker of the divine nature. There's participation that's expected along with that faith. It's not with our power. It's not with our might. It's not so we will be saved, but it is expected. I like the way one theologian describes it. He says these graces relate to each other the way branches relate to the trunk and twigs to the branch. Like the fruit of the Spirit, these qualities grow out of life and out of a vital relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not enough for the Christian to let go and let God, as though spiritual growth were God's work alone. Literally, Peter wrote, make every effort to bring alongside. The father and the child must work together. This is not legalism because you are not saved by it. These do not have the power to save you, but it is your identity. This is who you are, and this is what you're called to. Faith, we said, is the starting point, and then Peter lists off seven other qualities that are chain-linked together. Most likely, the order of these other virtues, that they don't matter as much as the fact that they're linked together. It's like a chain-link fence. They're all seamlessly rooted together. But the, actually, the qualities that do matter is the beginning one, faith. That's what we're going to be dipping into. Each one of these needs faith in order to work. And then the last one's important too. It's love. That's what they point to. That's the goal of all of these qualities. But as we exercise one, it's going to deepen another one. They're all linked up together. Let's jump in. It says, supplement your faith with virtue. Peter starts with virtue. And some translations would have this as moral excellence or goodness. This is exactly the word that Peter used to describe God in verse 3. 
It was God's glory. It was his excellence, his moral virtues, his goodness that we were called towards. And after we have witnessed it, after we have experienced and tasted God's excellence, we're called to be partakers of it. In this context, virtue means an uncommon character that is worthy of praise. There was a guy in Michigan that bought a couch for his man cave, and he bought it at a secondhand store, and he, he liked the couch. The couch was really comfortable. It was the ottoman. It was his footstool that was super lumpy, but he's a guy, so he didn't do anything about it. But naturally, two weeks later, his daughter was sitting on the couch in the footstool, and she's like, what is wrong with this footstool? Why is it so lumpy? So she unzips it, and she finds something inside. She pulls it out, and it's a wooden box. And you're like, what is a wooden box doing in there? They open it up, there's $43,000 of cash. That's a good day, right? <laughs> Don't know how much you bought the couch for. It was not $43,000, though. Legally, it was his. An attorney told him he had no obligation to return the money. No one even knew that he had it. But instead, he calls the store up. He goes through the effort of tracking the original owner down, and he gives it back. Like, that is moral excellence. That is an uncommon character that is worthy of praise. In our faith in Jesus, that's what we're supposed to draw this moral excellency out of. It's our trust in God that provides for this moral excellency. There should be moral excellency in the way that we date, the way we do business, the way we parent, the way we live, because we're leaning into Jesus. We're tasting his goodness, and we want to show that in our lives, too. Well, we're going to start to see the chain link come in. Supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. Last week, we talked about the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and I said that it was both factual we had to understand what Jesus did. We need to know the facts, but it's not just factual. We also need a personal relationship. It's intimate knowledge. Well, Peter's using a slightly different word here for knowledge. It's the Greek word gnosis, and it can be a synonym. It can mean intimate knowledge, but it's likely that Peter is talking about something else. It's likely that he's talking about comprehension, an intellectual grasp of something. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That seems to be a good picture of what this knowledge is. It's still tied to intimacy. We want to know what God's will is. We want to know his will so that we can do it, so that we can follow after him because we love him. But it's comprehension. It's after we've tested the will of God, we know if it's good, if it's acceptable, if it's perfect. This is a progressively acquired knowledge as we go through life. This helps us understand what's good. For instance, last summer I was making a lot of car repairs, and I would do this on a Friday morning. And I don't know if you've ever done car repairs. Sometimes those can be stressful, like bleeding my brake lines. I don't want to screw that up. I really don't want to screw that up, right? And one of my sons, he loves projects. He lives, he eats, he breathes projects because he loves my tools. And so what would inevitably happen is this is a Friday morning, it's my day off, my kids would get wind, they would rush out, and I would give them a tool and say, here, you can use this tool. 
And that would occupy them for all five seconds. They'd drop it, and they'd start grabbing the other stuff that I had set up for the project. And I'd be like, no, 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 no. You can't touch that. Put that down. Grab this. And they'd take it for two seconds, and they'd put it down, and they'd start rearranging stuff and run away with stuff. And it would, it would end in me blowing up in anger. And then Chelsea would hear me blow up in anger, my wife. And then she'd come, and she'd try to lure the kids away. And they'd be drawn back, and they'd start picking up tools again. And it, it's just like this circle that kept going around and around. And eventually I said, this isn't worth it. I don't, I don't want my kids' picture of me doing car projects to be blowing up in anger. That's not worth it. I should have patience, and I don't. There's a knowledge that is acquired there of what is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect. As you practice moral excellency or Maybe as you fail to practice moral excellency, you learn what is good and acceptable and perfect. The reason this knowledge takes faith is because you are trusting God to set that definition. It's when we hold it up to God's standards that we know if it's good and acceptable and perfect. This knowledge, it leads to the next one. It's out of the knowledge I supply self-control. Now, self-control was a cardinal virtue in Greek moral philosophy. It's the idea of maintaining control over your passions rather than being controlled by them. The difference between Christianity and Greek philosophy is we're not doing this in our own power. We're not maintaining control by our might. We're not mustering the willpower for this to control our passions. Now, there can be some practical wisdom that goes along with self-control. Maybe you need to shut your internet off after 8 p.m. Maybe you need to get better sleep so you're not so cranky and mean and bitter towards people. Maybe you need to do car projects after the kids go to bed rather than when they're awake in the morning, right? We're dipping into faith. We're dipping into God's promises, his power that's what's granted us everything we need. And so we need knowledge of Jesus. We need that relationship with Jesus. We see this word self-control used in Galatians 5 when it's talking about the fruit of the Spirit. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. You see, this type of self-control, it's not man-made. It's not in your power. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It comes as we soak in God's glory and excellence. There can be practical wisdom that goes along with it. But what you need most is not practical wisdom. You need your inner being to be renewed. Your self-control is a spiritual thing. A lack of self-control, it can start with something good. We can start with something good that we make an idol of, that we give our worship to. Or maybe it starts with something good that we bend to our will, that we use our pride and our authority for. But either way, a lack of self-control, it's when we buy into a spiritual lie. The reason we can't stop eating ice cream it's because we think it's going to help us with peace or anxiety or we feel like we just deserve it so much or we need it. That's fulfillment. That's worship. That's worshiping creation, not the creator. Or sexual desires. Those are good things. God gave us those for a reason, but we take those and we use them out of turn. We use them to serve what we want, not, not in a marriage, 
But however we fancy, that's our pride. That's our authority. That's believing a lie. This is exactly what we're in the process of escaping from. Last week, Peter said, he describes us as, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That word for escape we said was active. It's an ongoing escape. You don't escape by your own power. You escape by the promises of God. And that's where self-control starts to appear. You are restraining those sinful desires because of what you've experienced through Jesus, because of the goodness, because of his standards, because of your faith. I like the way one pastor put it. This was John Piper. He was given a strategy for how to beat idols. And he said, one way is to enjoy a superior satisfaction. What steps have you taken to awaken affection for Jesus? Have you fought for joy? Don't be fatalistic. You were created to treasure Christ with all your heart, more than you treasure sex or sugar or sports or shopping. If you have little taste for Jesus, competing pleasures will triumph. This is self-control that comes from exposing spiritual lies and trusting God's promises that's going to be what restrains self-control. And maybe practical wisdom plays into that, but it doesn't create the desire. Practical wisdom never creates the desire. When we move on, it says self-control with steadfastness. That's a word you don't hear every day, right? Steadfastness is the capacity to hold out or bear up in the face of difficulty. I ran cross-country in high school, and one of my least favorite exercises to do were wall sits. You guys ever do those before? You sit with your back against a wall and you just have to hold it. And the coach says it's only for a minute or two, but that's not what happens. All the players are like, okay, well, I can hold it longer than you can. And so then it's a competition. So what was supposed to be one minute turns into 10 minutes. And what you notice is as you sit there, your muscles begin to shake, right? You start to feel that strain deeper and more powerfully. Like that your weight pushes down on you. Well, our author, Peter, he knows what it's like to initially fail at steadfastness. Jesus tells Peter in his earthly ministry near the end that he's going to deny him three times. And Peter's like, that's never going to happen, Jesus. But then the weight sets in. They take Jesus away with swords and clubs. And Peter, to his credit, he wants to fight. And Jesus says, No. And so instead, Jesus runs, he flees. And then I, I love my boy, Peter, because he tries to follow in disguise, but he's not the best secret agent out there, right? Like people keep recognizing them. And, and they're like, aren't you that, with that Jesus guy over there? And the weight pushes down and he denies. He says, no, no, I'm not with him. And two more times, surely you're with that Jesus guy over there in the pressure of being put on trial the pressure of facing persecution hits him and his faith buckles. He denies Jesus three times and he walks away sobbing because of it. This endurance, it does not find its strength in our own capacity, but in our relationship with Jesus. That wasn't the end for Peter. Jesus restores Peter after the resurrection and Peter begins to understand very quick, he gets a second chance. Peter and John, they're preaching about Jesus in the streets of Jerusalem, and the religious authorities, they grab him, 
they question them, they command them to cut it out. And this is how Peter and John reply. This is Acts 4. It says, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. You see, resistance is pushing down on them, and they're bearing it. They're holding up to it. That's steadfastness. What changed? Well, they had a deeper belief in Jesus. They understood him better. They had the Holy Spirit at this point in their lives. There's different things to be steadfast about in our lives. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be persecution. There's sinful living. All of these things will push down on you. Are you feeling that today? Do you feel the just heaviness of whatever it is pushing down on you, trying to get you to buckle your faith? Jesus went through an intense time of steadfastness, an intense time of endurance. Right before he was betrayed and taken to be crucified, he's praying in the garden. And the weight is so heavy, the difficulty of what is about to happen to him, not just his death on the cross, but the payment of our sins, it's so real that he begins to sweat profusely. It says it talks about, it's like drops of blood under the strain and agony of it. And yet his prayer, his prayer is, Father, not my will, but yours be done. It was Jesus' relationship with the Father that allowed him to bear that weight, to hold up in the face of difficulty. And if you're in a tough spot right now, if you're feeling that weight, it's your relationship with Jesus that's going to help you bear the weight. We dip into our faith. We dip into God's promises of, of God's excellence, of who we've tasted him to be, and that's what's going to fuel us. That's what's going to give us the endurance to stand up to these things. We see then that this steadfastness is unlinked with godliness, Godliness, this is a repeat word as well. We saw this in verse 3 last week. It's twisted together with life, with zoe. So God's power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And it's not really surprising then that this would be a quality that we should practice. There is a famous Puritan that once said, A godly man does bear God's name and image. Godliness is God-likeness. Tis one thing to profess God, another thing to resemble him. We resemble God. Godliness is our inwardly, it's our desires and our values when they're focused in on Jesus. And that makes outwardly our actions become like him. It results in a life that's honoring to God. It's our ability to drink true life in and then live it out. We talked about this last week, but that's why we're called to God's glory and excellence. We're called to see the goodness of God, and that should change us. That should result in something different inside of us. In Romans 1, we see the opposite trait. We see ungodliness because humans suppress the truth and worship the creation rather than the creator. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, the opposite of godliness is a life that both ignores God 
and rushes towards corruption. It rushes towards decay. Is there a part of your life right now where maybe you'll, you'll agree with a lot of what Christianity says, but you're ignoring one part of it. You're ignoring something that God has to say. That's going to keep you from godliness. Endurance helps bring out our godliness because it forces us to wrestle under the difficulties, under the strain of what we're feeling. We wrestle with what we believe to be true. Our life looks a certain way as we go through endurance. And this godliness, it's not limited to just one area into your life or a couple areas. It's your whole life. Does your whole life begin to look like Jesus? This godliness is linked with brotherly affection, which is also linked with love. These last two qualities are a little confusing. They both involve love. Like, what's the difference between brotherly affection and love? Is, is that redundant? If so, why do we need them? If not, how are they different? Well, one is Philadelphia and the other is agape. These words, they can be distinct and they can be the same thing. It's the context that's going to drive the meaning. And I think there's good reason to, to show that the context does have separate meanings here. Most likely, brotherly affection, it, it has a depth of exclusive love. It ties into family relationships. Now, we have the phrase, blood is thicker than water, which means that family is closer than non-family. This was especially true in the first century. Family was guarded. They were protected. They were cared for in a different way. We see some of this in Paul's writings. In 1 Timothy, he writes, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The context that the Apostle Paul is talking about is blood-related family members taking care of their widowed mother. And he, the reason he says that they're worse than an unbeliever is because it's unfathomable, like it's unthinkable in their society that they would refuse to take care of a family member. So instead of having moral excellency, they're sinking below even what society believes to be true. Galatians 6 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You see, we're called to do good to everyone, but there's something special about the way we do good to fellow believers. They're a different tier. There's an even greater affection because there's an even greater bond. There's a greater unity that is there. Now, sometimes when my boys get into fights, when they're particularly unremorseful about what they did, I'll sit one of them down and I'll say very tenderly, hey, what did you just say to my son? No, 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 not your brother, not your brother. What did you say to my son? Because I want to connect in their heads that it's not just their brother that they're being mean to, it's my son. There's, there's a link to a higher authority there. There's a spot in Matthew 25 which talks about the final judgment. And Jesus says to a group on his right that they gave him water, they gave him food, they visited him in prison, they clothed him, and they're like, uh, Jesus, when did we do this? And he answers them in 25, uh, Matthew 25, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You see, blood is thicker than water, and there's nothing thicker than the blood of Jesus. 
We're called to have a kinship affection for any believer because they are Jesus's adopted brother. We're dipping into our faith for that. We are trusting what God has said, trusting who he's calling that person to be, and we're drawing out unparalleled kindness, unparalleled generosity that would normally only be reserved for immediate family. That is brotherly affection. Jesus says in John that all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This brotherly affection, it's then linked with the final quality. This is what all the qualities are pointing to, and it's love, it's agape. It's the quality of warm regard for and interest in another without limitation to very intimate relationships. I really like the insight that one scholar had. This was Michael Green who said, in friendship, the partners seek mutual solace. In sexual love, mutual satisfactions. In both cases, these feelings are aroused because of what the loved one is. With agape, it's the reverse. God's agape is evoked not by what we are, but by what he is. This agape should be defined as a deliberate desire for the highest good of the loved one, which shows itself in sacrificial action for that person's good. God loves from his nature, not because of your performance, Like we serve a creator that would put others before himself. That's the essence of who God is. He would put you first even when you don't deserve it. Now, a lot of us have been affected by death and it's really hard when we lose someone close to us that we've done a lot of life with. That makes the death that much harder. It is infinitely more harder for Jesus to have done that. He was the one that was with God from the beginning They had this fellowship. He always obeyed him. He always brought God the Father joy. Always in fellowship before time existed, the Father and the Son were together. They are one, and yet because of what we did, in order to save us so that we wouldn't be separated from him for eternity, Jesus rescued us. He willingly, he gladly, he lovingly rescued us. He stood on that cross, he died, but he also took the payment of our sins. Every last drop he soaked up of God's wrath because we deserve it. No, because that is who our God is. That is the essence of his goodness and his excellence. That's the glory that God is, that he loves from his nature, not because of your performance. 1 John 4 would say, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In the same way, your love for other people, it should not come from who they are, their performance. It comes from who you are in Christ. They can be the vilest, most corrupt person in the world, and yet we should have a deliberate desire for their absolute best. There should be sacrifice on our part so that they can have good things, their personal good things. Not because they are decent chaps that are gonna love us in return, but because we are partakers of the divine nature. You see, God loves us from his nature and not our performance. And so we're called to love others, not from their performance, but from who we are in Christ. All these qualities 
They require faith to do them properly. That's what we've been dipping into. We've been dipping into our trust of who God is to lavishly supply these qualities, but they're all build towards love. Like that's what the capstone is meant to be. If you've been around church for a while, you've heard this next passage. But I, I really like the picture for us. It's the importance of love and it's some of what love looks like. It's 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. I started today with the story of our tightrope walker, Charles Blondin, but I didn't actually finish it. After he asked everyone if they wanted to get in the wheelbarrow and no one said anything, he, he lowered the stakes a little bit. He said, all right, who's gonna get on my back then? Who will go on my back and get a piggyback ride across? And as you might expect, it was crickets, right? No one raised their hand. No one trusted him enough. But after a few minutes, one hand shot up, and it was from his manager. See, his manager was willing to get on his back, and Charles Blondin told him, he said, hey, don't look down and don't try to balance yourself. Otherwise, we're dead, right? And so for 1,100 feet, he piggybacked with his manager across the Niagara Gorge. And at the very end, the crowd was so thick that he had to kind of like run up to get through the crowd. And I often wonder what motivated his manager. Do you think it was money? Do you think that's worth any type of money? I think it was trust. I think he knew Blondin. I think he repeatedly saw Blondin do amazing things and it built his trust in a way that the spectators didn't have. Let me just peek at a part of our verse for next week. This is verse eight, just, just a part of it. It says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they do something. <laughs> Peter says that if these qualities are yours and if they're in Increasing. That's an important part. It's not just that you have these qualities. It's not that you can rely on what you did last week. It's that they are yours and they are constantly growing because they're rooted in our faith. Our faith in God should be constantly growing. It should be deepening as we see God move in our lives. And that should make a difference. These qualities should increase. And if they are present and if they're increasing, they're going to do something for us. But we're going to talk about that next week as we finish this series. But I just want to remind us that Paul gave us the strongest language possible. He said, make every effort to do this. Make all haste. Have all the excited fervor to build these qualities. Now, if you don't have faith in Jesus yet, if you're still wrestling with who Jesus is, don't do these qualities. They depend on faith, right? Your step is faith. 
Do I believe who God is? Do I believe his promises? But if you do, then man, we're to make every effort to do this. If something's stopping you, if there is something that is disrupting, that's getting in the way of some of these qualities from happening, we have a prayer room right there. We would love to pray for you. We would love to unleash God's power into your life by asking him for his goodness. And so that is one way that you can have haste. That is one way that you can have an eagerness to make these qualities yours is with prayer. I would love to just close our time and I'd love to just pray for you guys, pray for our congregation. So I'm gonna do that. Lord, I thank you so much for your son. I thank you for your goodness and excellence that you're a completely good God, that you're the best of the best and that there's no evil inside of you. And I, I just pray, Lord, that our faith would deepen, that you would give us opportunities to trust you better and that we would take them, that we would get in the wheelbarrow, Lord, because we know you and we trust you. And so for these qualities, Lord, would you deepen them? Would you increase them in our lives that you would get glory from them? I am so thankful for your son. I'm thankful for the example he gave and the power that you've granted us through knowledge of him. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Have a good week, New Hope.